Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 7, Chapter 18, The Long Night. There was no use discussing means of escape. Rick knew that. There were none. Their entire prison could be taken in at a glance. It was one flat expanse of rock, broken only by the thin circle that marked the trap door. Julius Weiss was sitting up now, but he was still breathing heavily. Rick wandered among the piles of equipment, looking at the labels on each crate. I wonder why they brought all this stuff up here with us, Scotty asked. Easiest way to get rid of it, I suppose, Rick answered. Then again, they might have been superstitious about it, too. He looked at the equipment idly. Everything but the batteries. And you know why Van Groot copped onto those? He was afraid we sent a message, Scotty guessed. Yep, and he thought they were our main supply. Rick snapped his fingers. But who says we can't still try to send a message? He didn't know about the steam generator. Zircon looked up. Without a power supply, we have no water for the steam engine. And without the batteries, we have no filament voltage. Rick started searching through the equipment. We still have that little 12-volt charging unit, haven't we? Zircon rose and pointed it out to him. There it is, but what can we use to turn it? If we could turn it, we could get 12 volts from her? Rick asked, reaching for the crate containing the little generator. But how could we turn it? A windmill. The scientist looked interested for a moment and then shook his head skeptically. We have the crates, so we could make one, I suppose, but what good would it do? The big transmitter takes such a heavy load, 12 volts would do a little more than tickle it. I doubt we could even get the tubes heated properly with so little voltage. Well, I guess you know best, Rick said gloomily, but just sitting here seems like giving up pretty easily. Weiss rose onto his elbows. Why not try it, Hobart? he urged. Who can tell? Zircon shrugged his shoulders. I guess there's no harm in trying. Let's give it a chance anyway. Weiss rose to his feet to help Zircon uncrate the generator, while Rick and Scotty started tearing boxes apart to build a crude windmill. Save every nail. We're going to need them, Rick said. Scotty nodded and started making a small pile of nails beside him. They found a spool and tore the wire from it, deciding to use it as a pulley. A long bolt was chosen as an axle, and the boys decided to use belts for the power drive. Rick's belt was back on the mountain, but Zircon's, added to Scotty's, gave enough length. Slowly, the windmill took shape, and they turned the wooden box staves, serving as blades, into the wind, twisting the blades to give them the proper pitch. Rick scratched his head when they came to the problem of gearing, but Zircon dropped his work of erecting the radar equipment and came to their assistance. He did some rapid figuring on gear ratios and picked out the spools and the equipment for them to use. They stripped the wire from the spools and installed them in the rickety windmill, then prepared to install the belts. Boy, you can't beat a college education, can you? Scotty joked as they looked at their masterpiece. Rick grinned back at him and then looked to see what progress the two scientists were making. Well, that's it, Zircon announced finally. He looked out across the mountains, as though wondering if such feeble equipment could push a message by them. Shall we try it? Weiss asked nervously. 
The boys slid the belts into the pulleys and held their breath. Slowly, the blades began to revolve, faster and faster. Well, it's turning the generator, Rick said excitedly. Zircon bent the radar modulator and shook his head. Just like I said, the power is so weak it hardly lights up the tubes. The others bent to look at the tubes, and they were barely glowing. But we have no power for our receiver. Not that it matters. We wouldn't receive anything anyway. Bigger miracles have happened, Scotty said. They might hear our message and answer. That isn't what he means, Rick explained. Any radar set that picked us up wouldn't be equipped to send messages. That isn't how ordinary radar works. Only the equipment on Spindrift Island and ours here are rigged up to send messages. Wow, that's right, Scotty remembered. Regular radar isn't like dots and dashes, is it? Rick shook his head. Well, shall we give it a try? He said to the scientists. Zircon squatted at a key and took a deep breath. Then his fingers began to tap. Weiss's eyes flew anxiously from piece to piece of the strange-looking rig spread out on the platform. It was a tiny hope, this attempt to reach the outside world. Blind transmission. If the signal were picked up, Rick mused, no one would be able to tell them it had been heard. That wouldn't matter, of course, if they could send help. But the hope was small. Zircon was rapping away expertly on the key, and Rick's ear picked out the message. He was sending their approximate latitude and longitude and describing their plight. When Zircon finally tired, he turned the key over to Weiss. The little scientist repeated the message over and over, meanwhile scanning the horizon with his eyes. The swift Tibetan sun was touching the edge of the peaks now. A night would be upon them soon. Rick looked up at the windmill and saw that it was still turning merrily. We can send from now until kingdom come if the wind keeps up, he remarked to Scotty. Maybe we can send all night. I wish I could help, Scotty commented with a wistful look at the radar key. Why not, Rick said. He took a notebook from his pocket and began to write the dots and dashes in the message that the scientists were sending. Here, he handed the book to Scotty. Hold the key twice as long for a dot as you would for a dash. That's all there is to it. Scotty scratched his head over the scrawl on the page and said he would do his best. We should stand watches on that thing. Don't you think, Professor Zircon? Zircon nodded without much enthusiasm, Rick noted. Their signal would be pitifully weak at best, and he doubted it was getting out at all. The black curtain that was the Tibetan night dropped suddenly, and soon it was difficult to make out the figure of Julius Weiss crouched at the key. I'll stab the first watch. Zircon said. Then you can take over, Rick. And I'll wake you about dawn, Rick said to Scotty. There was nothing more to be done. If their message was scaling the walls that surrounded them, there was a faint hope. If not... Rick crawled into his sleeping bag and pulled it close about him. There was no friendly chat between him and Scotty that night, as there had been every night on the trail. He knew Scotty wanted to be alone with his thoughts, as he did with his. They were rambling thoughts of home and of all that had happened to them. He had a fleeting glimpse of the face of a little Hindu boy as he drifted into the half-world between sleep and wakefulness, and the last thing he heard was the radar key futilely tapping out, held captive, high plateau.
Chapter 19 The Glorious Fourth Happy holiday, pale. For a moment, Rick thought he was home. Then he sat upright and looked into the face of Scotty, bending over him. Hey, why didn't you wake me for my watch? He demanded. Scotty grinned. You looked like you were dreaming of ice cream. I remember we always used to have ice cream on the 4th of July. Holy smoke! Rick jumped from his sleeping bag. This is the 4th of July. Yep, Scotty said sourly. Happy Independence Day. Only I'm not feeling very independent this morning, Rick remarked. He looked across the plateau at Zircon, who was still busily pumping away at the key. The big scientist tried to muster a grin and asked, Where are your fireworks? That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Rick said. Shall we drop down to the drugstore and get some? The reminder of home sobered everybody for a moment, and then Scotty spoke up. Hey, that reminds me. Barbie gave us both a package we were supposed to open today. Rick started to grin. Say, you don't suppose that little monkey made us a present of... He leapt for the pile of equipment and started searching for the boxes that his sister had presented them with such ceremony. Here's mine, he said finally. But I don't see yours, Scotty. The heck with mine, open it. Rick tore the paper from the box and removed the cover. Are they? Yep, they sure are. Fireworks. It was the first time any of them had laughed in a week, and the plateau rang with their boisterous howls. Rick finally stopped laughing and looked into the box and shook his head. Well, what did you expect to find? A rope ladder? Scotty jeered. Would have been thoughtful of her. Maybe that's in your box, he answered. My box? Ha! I just remembered. My box was among that stuff that Samid walked off with. Oh, well, Rick answered. One six-incher is better than none. He drew one of the red firecrackers from the box and held it high. It may be our last fourth, so why don't we show those Mongols how we celebrate a good, rip-roaring fourth of July back home? He said with false gaiety. He walked toward the edge of the plateau and looked over. Far below, he could see two of the guards posted by the entrance in the base of the rock. As though we need guarding, he commented. Scotty's eyes were gleaming. How good of a shot are you? he asked. What do you mean? Scotty pointed straight down at one of the dozing guards. See how his leather armor is pulled away from the back of his neck? Rick looked. Impossible, he said. You think so, huh? Scotty reached for the firecracker in Rick's hand. Watch an expert, he chuckled. Rick held a match while Scotty lit the firecracker, then watched his pal hold it over the edge of the plateau. Scotty squinted for a moment, then let the firecracker go. It started to turn over as it fell, then straightened out and plummeted straight to its target. With a shower of sparks, it went straight down the neck of the man and let go. The Mongol leapt straight into the air and let out the most fearsome howl that Rick had ever heard. Scotty was convulsed with laughter. Zircon deserted his key and Weiss hurried to the plateau edge as they realized what the boys had done. They all looked down at the guard who was digging at the back of his armor and shaking his dagger up at them. Brother, if he could get his hands on you, Rick said. He seemed to know what it was, Scotty observed. Wise spoke up. You'll forget, 
These people are from the land where firecrackers were invented. China is an old story to them, a very old story. They turned from the edge and walked back toward the box of firecrackers. Well, I for one don't see any sense in having a nice holiday spoiled just because we're up here, Rick said, trying to speak lightly. Neither do I, Scotty replied. But Rick could tell that the excitement of his bullseye shot had worn off and his heart wasn't in it. If they gave in to the gloom that was enveloping them, Rick realized their imprisonment would be even more of a torture than it was already. Hunger was nipping at his insides and would get worse as the day progressed. None of the others had mentioned being hungry or thirsty, but he knew that all of them were. With what passed for a laugh, he reached for the box of fireworks and beckoned Scotty to the edge of the cliff. They tried to amuse themselves by dropping the smaller crackers over the side for a while, but this soon paled on them. Seems like a waste of time, Scotty sighed. We have nothing but time, though. The moment that Rick said that, he knew he had queered any holiday atmosphere left in either of them. They dropped the fireworks on the ground and walked to the radar key over which Weiss was now crouching. They stood there silently watching Weiss's finger tap out the message, though every last one of them had lost hope that it would ever reach the outside world. If only we could do something, Scotty suddenly exploded. It was not his pal's nerve breaking, Rick knew. Scotty meant that he wanted to go down fighting. Look, why don't we make this 4th of July a real whoop-de-doer, Rick suggested. Oh, Rick, Scotty objected. I think that's a wonderful idea, Weiss spoke up suddenly, surprising them both. So do I, Zircon added. What's on your mind, Rick? Well, he began. Here's the field telephone. He reached into the equipment box and lifted it out. We can use the head of it as a microphone. Light was dawning on Zircon now. I see. You want to attach it to the amplifier and speaker and really give them a grand explosion. Wait, Weiss interrupted. We are going to use that field equipment for communicating between our radar equipment and our camp when we got there. Optimist, Zircon snorted. Sure, let's do it. Scotty was enthusiastic now. Zircon disengaged the amplifier from the radar equipment and started connecting it to the loudspeaker. Well, that means no messages for a while, Weiss said worriedly. Let them wait. Zircon laughed recklessly. He seemed to be having as much fun as the two boys now. Rick connected the makeshift microphone to the amplifier and speaker, and Zircon tied the hole into the wind-driven power supply. Good thing this is a 10-inch speaker, Rick grinned. This is really going to make some noise. Weiss was rummaging nervously through the equipment. I hope this turns out all right, he said. They'll never forget this 4th of July. Zircon smiled. Light up those firecrackers, Rick. Scotty held the microphone far away from him and Rick held one of the largest crackers and a pair of pliers and lit it. They held their ears as the firecracker fizzed, and then it exploded with a roar that startled even the scientists who thought they knew what the effect was going to be. The blast rolled from the huge speaker in a thunderous wave that smashed against the rocky walls and imprisoned the lost city, seeming to gain volume 
as it boomed from ledge to ledge. Look at those Mongols, Scotty said, pointing down. They looked and saw terrified faces turned up to them. Oh, wonderful, do it again, Julius Weiss yelled. They roared with laughter at the little man's sudden enthusiasm. And then Rick said, Why not make this one whoop-de-doer-duper? Two of them at once. Zircon slapped Rick on the back in approval. Rick put two crackers between the jaws of the plier. This time, Scotty stretched his arm almost out of his socket to get away from the blasting it would come. The fuses cracked as Rick touched the match to them and held the firecrackers toward the microphone. With a roar, they went off. But the ocean of sound that welled from the speaker wiped the smiles off every face. For as the reverberations rocketed across the city, they felt an ominous rumble. Rick saw Weiss staring beyond him to the left, and as he whirled around, his heart pounded. A whole section of the mountain wall was slowly detaching itself from the sheer side, and with gathering speed, started to slip toward the floor of the valley. Then the side of the mountain disengaged itself completely and with a mighty roar plunged toward the earth. With horror, Rick realized what they had done. Their 4th of July celebration had set off a landslide. They were almost knocked from their feet as one half of the crumbling mountain hurled itself outward and landed with a deafening crash squarely in the lost city. Chapter 20 the return of the great Khan. Choking clouds of dust rose from the floor of the valley and mushroomed out over the city. Their eardrums were still numbed by the mighty roar of the landslide, and below them they could see nothing through the haze. Rock was still falling, and Rick breathed thankfulness that they could not see the havoc wrought on the Mongols by their innocently intended celebration. No one spoke. It was impossible to put their anguish into words. They just stared down into the rising cloud of dust. Finally, the Zircon muttered, oh, I didn't want this to happen, even to be free. And especially since it serves no purpose, Weiss added, almost in a whisper. Rick looked over the valley, trying to see the extent of the damage wrought by the landslide. Even the golden tomb of the Genghis Khan was obscured and all that his eyes could find was the wall dividing the living city from the dead. The dust was slowly settling now, and they moved to the edge of the plateau to get a better look. Rick saw running figures and winced as he heard agonizing wails from below. Scotty appeared beside him. If only we could get down from here, he said urgently. Nobody would even notice now. But how? Rick's eyes went to the only exit which was the trap door. They couldn't hope to get that open. There was no way. No. Wait. On the trap door were the spools of wire they had taken from the repair kit when they made the windmill. Scotty saw them at the same time. Look, he exclaimed. The same thought was in their minds. They ran to the spools. Rick picked one up. It was heavy copper insulated with rubber and fabric. This could hold man's weight. Mine, Scotty replied. Let's get busy. Not you. 
Rick objected. If anybody's going to take this chance, I am. Let's see your hands. He held them out and realized Scotty was right. He had forgotten that his hands were scored and cut from his descent down the rocks. In the excitement of all that had happened since, he hadn't noticed the pain. It's my job, Scotty said. Come on, help me. The professors are at their sides now. Scotty can get down on the wire, Rick explained quickly, adding to himself, with luck. It was a terrible risk. The Mongols might see the descending figure, or the wire might part. It wasn't designed to take such a load. And what could they hitch it to? Scotty thought this over and then decided. I'll go down hand over hand. You couldn't lower me. There isn't anything to take a purchase on. We'll each wind a coil of the line around our bodies, and then lie down, and each hold on to one of the crates, Zircon suggested. Rick almost objected. He didn't want Scotty to take the chance. Then he realized that, for Scotty, it was the only choice of two evils. Stay on the plateau and starve, or try the wire and perhaps survive. If he failed, it would at least be a quick end. Rick turned hurriedly and walked to the edge of the plateau while the others unwound coil after coil of the heavy wire. He didn't want Scotty to see how worried he was. Only after he had stood a moment, looking down into the choking clouds of dust that still rose from the valley, did he regain control of his expression and hurried back to help the others join the wires together. They twisted two wires together to form a stronger line and rechecked the places that they had connected coil to coil. Then one by one, they shook hands with Scotty. You'll make it, Zircon said briefly. Weiss's smile was confident. We'll expect you back through the trap door. Rick took his friend's hand. Easy does it, fella. Scotty took a pair of rubberized gloves from the repair kit and slipped them on. Back in ten minutes, he said calmly. Zircon, as the heaviest, would be anchor man. He wound the wire around his big body twice, then secured the end firmly. Rick was next in line. He made a double coil right in front of Zircon and slipped into it. In front of him, Weiss did the same. Then they all laid down on their stomachs, feet toward the edge of the plateau, arms around the heaviest crates they could find. Scotty lowered the wire down the side of the plateau, closest to the mountainside, and saw that it reached the ground with room to spare. Hold tight, he warned. Here I go. Rick noted that his friend's voice seemed perfectly normal. Again, he wondered at Scotty's control, knowing that the boy must be scared stiff. His face was away from the edge, but he knew by the tension on the wire when Scotty put his weight on it, and he knew when Scotty went over the edge because the strands bit cruelly into his middle, and he had to grit his teeth to keep from crying out. Then he felt himself sliding. The awful realization came to him that Scotty's weight was pulling them all toward the edge. Rick tried to dig in his feet and felt the leather soles scrape against the rock. He sank his teeth into his lip with the strain of holding fast to the crate he held and saw that it was sliding, slowly, relentlessly back. Behind him he heard Weiss exclaim and cold sweat started out on his face. The little professor must be near the edge. In front of him, he could see Zircon's powerful legs pushing against the flat surface, as though the big scientists were trying to swim forward toward the center of the plateau. 
The stone scored his elbows and rubbed through the thick fabric of his woolen shirt, but he didn't even feel the pain. Like Zircon, he was trying to hold his ground with swimming motions, driving his legs against the flat stone that gave no grip whatsoever. How long had it been? Eternity had passed since the wire had bitten into his wrist. His breath was ragged with trying to breathe through the constriction. He felt wetness around his waist that might be blood. Weiss let out a strangled yell, and Rick and Zircon increased their efforts to hold fast. The slow, terrible dragging went on, and his elbows left thin smears of red where they pressed against the stone. Zircon's breathing was loud, but he heard no further sound behind him. He was afraid to look anywhere but straight ahead. Were they all going to drop from the edge? His kicking feet pushed and met nothing. A horrified gasp was forced from him, and his clutching hands pulled at the slowly moving crate. His feet were already over the edge, his ankles, his legs were waving uselessly, his knees scraping the rock. And then the pressure stopped. Scotty had reached the ground, or had the wire parted. Rick scrambled back from the edge, feeling the drag of Weiss's body on the wire. Zircon's powerful legs pushed at the rock. Inch by inch, they regained what they had lost, until the weak voice said, All right, all right, I'm up, I'm up. Zircon whipped out of the wire coils and jumped to help Weiss. The little professor tried valiantly to stand, but his knees buckled and he fell flat. Rick unwound the wire from around his waist, feeling the pain as it came loose. He felt as though he'd been cut in half. Julius Weiss was stark white, even his lips colorless. He dragged me right over. I, I thought... I know. I know what you thought, Zircon said hoarsely. I thought we were all done for, too. Did he make it? Rick staggered to the edge and looked down, one hand on his aching midriff. Far below, the dangling wire vanished into the cloud of dust. I think he must have, he said. For a few moments, none of them spoke. Each was busy tending to his wounds. Rick gulped air into his tortured lungs, inspected the welts where the wire had cut, and found that the wetness was only perspiration. He looked at his raw elbows and knees and winced at the torn, scraped flesh. Then he went to the opposite side and tried to see through the heavy cloud of dust down to the entrance. He could see dim shapes in the dust, and knew that the Mongols were at the entrance. Probably some of them had hidden from the avalanche in the passageway. How could Scotty get through that? A low rumble jarred the thoughts from him. He looked up and up to an overhanging ledge of rock far above the valley floor. He heard Weiss and Zircon gasp behind him, but he couldn't take his eyes from the ledge. Slowly, ever so slowly, it detached itself from the mountainside and seemed to float down and down. A grinding roar shook the stone platform and smashed against his eardrums in beating waves. Dust and broken rock erupted high in the air and fell around them in a gravelly rain. For a full five minutes, the three on the plateau stood with bowed heads, their hands held high to protect them from debris that fell in the wake of the great ledge. The roar slowly lessened and gave way to sharp explosions 
as small rocks smash into the valley. And then there was only silence. Rick looked up, his face pale. Please, God, let that be the last of it, Zircon said. The dust was all around them now, rising in great gusts up toward the very peaks, coating everything with brown grit and blotting out the sun. Then, with a suddenness that sent a chill through the travelers, the whole dust-choked valley was bathed in weird green light. It spread over their heads in an arc and exploded into colored balls of fire. Look! Weiss yelled. His shaking hand pointed to the high wall. There, shadowy in the eerie light of the rocket, stood a terrible figure dressed in leather armor and standing with feet wide apart on the wall. It wore a great helmet with a horsetail crest, and on one arm was an embossed shield. From the free hand spurted a fountain of fire that arced into the sky. The Genghis Khan. A surprised gasp came from the two professors, and Rick's lips framed the name. Scotty? But the sound was drowned out by the wail that rose from the city below. Through the dust, they glimpsed faintly a thousand Mongols kneeling in abject worship and bowing toward the figure on the wall. Rick came alive suddenly. Professor Weiss, he shouted above the wailing. Get on the mic. Tell them the Khan has returned. Tell them to get us down from here and that we're the Khan's true messengers. Tell them now. He's right, Zircon yelled. Hurry up, Julius. Weiss gripped the microphone and began to chant in Mongol. Rick couldn't understand the words, but even to him it sounded impressive. Later, Weiss told him what had been said. The great Khan, the mighty Khan, ruler of all men, has come again. Hear ye, people of the valley, hear and obey. Free my true messengers, whom ye have imprisoned on the hill of a thousand repentant ancestors. Take them with all their belongings to the valley entrance and set them free, that they may carry news of my coming to the outer world. The sonorous voice rolled out, echoing hollowly from the rock walls. This is the word of the great calm. Obey! A sigh like the rushing of a wind rose from the Mongols. They were prostrated, no man daring to lift his face to the awful being on the wall. Rick looked again for the figure on the wall. It was gone. Where had Scotty gone? They waited. The minutes ticked past and no one spoke. Then the trapdoor grated and lifted slowly upward. The head of the young warrior called Subatai appeared. He didn't look at them. Behind were other warriors, eyes downcast. We're sacred now, Rick whispered. They're afraid to look at us. Hastily, as though in fear of a deadly curse, the warriors lifted the equipment boxes. Zircon, Weiss, and Rick hastily piled loose odds and ends into empty boxes. Subatai whacked his warriors with the flat of his sword, urging them to greater speed. The equipment vanished through the entrance, and in an amazingly short time the plateau was cleared. With a low bow, eyes averted, Subatai stood aside. It was time for them to leave. 
The stairs rushed by as they ran down, and then they were outside, breathing the dust-laden air. The city was in shambles, Rick saw, but the crowd of Mongols who bowed down to the earth seemed undiminished. With relief, he realized that the place where the avalanche hit must have been thinly populated. Luckily, the slide had given them some warning. Few Mongols, if any, had been caught under the mass. But the one man whom they might have wished ill suddenly shouted and ran toward them. Von Groot. And behind him, Samid. We've got to get out of here, Rick shouted. And as he spoke, he saw Von Groot wrenching at his pocket. He was reaching for a gun. Rick scooped up a rock and hurled it with all his strength in the throw. It crunched into Von Groot's stomach and doubled him up. Samid leapt toward them, face contorted, and then Zircon was there to meet him. Rick ran to Van Groot just as the man staggered to his feet, reaching again for the gun in his pocket. Rick bent low, doubling up his fist. All the strength of his body was in a haymaker as he swung from his shoe tops. He felt his knuckles crack as the blow landed and Van Groot's legs buckled. Julius Weiss stepped in and smacked the renegade sharply on the head with the flat of a sword he had picked up. Van Groot tumbled to the ground and was quiet. Rick whirled to see Samid and Zircon locked in a titanic embrace. He grabbed a rock and leapt to the scientist's aid, but his help was not needed. Zircon brought up his hand sharply against the giant guide's throat, breaking Samid's hold. The guide rocked backwards, and as he did so, Zircon's fist came up with all the weight of his big body behind it. The bald fist caught Samid. He kept going backwards with increased impetus, fighting for balance. His heels struck rock, and he catapulted over, and his head struck the ground with an audible crack, and then he lay very still. Run! Zircon yelled. In a moment, they caught up with Subatai and the warriors who were lugging their equipment as fast as their short legs could travel. As the last crate was carried up the steps and into the passageway that led from the valley, Subatai and his men turned and hurried away. At that very moment, a mighty roar went up from the city. We've been found out, Rick exclaimed, and then he saw Scotty. The weirdly clad figure that had been on the wall was racing toward them with ground-eating strides. It bounded up the steps and into the passageway. Let's go, Scotty shouted. Out of the dust cloud, half of the warriors of the lost city came charging, waving swords. The vanguard knelt and discharged bows. Arrows rattled against the stone. Hurry up, Scotty urged. From over their heads came an ominous rumble. The four pushed into the passageway just as rock cascaded down in an ever-increasing mass. The roar increased to a thunderous crash, and all light was blocked out. The passageway to the lost city was closed. Scotty, Rick choked. What happened? It was all arranged, Scotty yelled above the din. Let's get out of here in case the roof of the tunnel goes. For the next few minutes, no one spoke as they wrestled the equipment to the outer end of the passageway. At last, they stood in the sunlight breathless from their frantic efforts. Scotty, attired in a strange garb, grinned at them, but it was a strained grin. I went in to see what had happened to you, and they saw me. That tipped them off, I guess, because some of them had seen me before. But the rockets, Rick exclaimed, and the landslide that blocked the entrance. I had help, Scotty said. 
unexpected help. And his grin broadened. A familiar voice spoke from the rock ledge above them. Happy, joyous Fourth of July! There, grinning down at them, stood Chada. Chapter 21. Success. Food had never tasted so good. The four travelers and Chada sat around a cooking fire, stuffing themselves with all the good things their recovered rations afforded. They paused between mouthfuls only long enough to answer or ask questions. Scotty fished a can of hamburger out of the fire and opened it, explaining meanwhile, I didn't know whether my weight was pulling you all after me or whether it was the wire stretching, but I didn't want to take any chances, so when I got near enough to the ground, I just let go. Good thing you did, Rick said. Professor Weiss was already over. My legs were kicking into space. I was plenty scared, brother, let me tell you. Weiss stopped, sipping hot tea long enough to add, I cried out when I slipped over, but then I decided I was practically dead and nothing could save me. Being pulled back up again was like a miracle. There are plenty of miracles, Scotty said. I came around the plateau and bumped right into a whole platoon of warriors. They didn't even notice me, I guess, because by that time I was so coated with dust they couldn't tell I wasn't one of them. But I saw that it wasn't any use trying to get into the hill. The passageway was blocked by Mongols, all hiding from the landslide. We guessed as much, Zircon nodded. They were all bound and praying like crazy, Scotty continued. Well, that gave me the idea of playing Genghis Khan. I skinned back through the city as fast as I could. For a while, I couldn't figure out how I was going to get over that wall. Then I saw a tree right next to it. I shinned up the tree and it bent over like a birch. And then I was on the wall. After that, it was easy. I jumped down ran to the golden tomb. We looked around before they caught us, so I knew right where the armor and stuff was. And while I was getting into that, Chata comes along, the Hindu boy beamed. And how, Scotty grinned. With my box of fireworks, I left on the yak, too, Chata explained. I can see you on the rock making shoots with fireworks, so I am thinking. I will make the shoots, too, and you will know that Chata is here. But when I come back with the box, there is Sahib Scotty. It's a good thing Scotty left his box of fireworks with the caravan, Rick said. Those Roman candles made quite an effect. Believe me, for a minute I thought it was actually the old Khan himself. Chada's arrival was a little short of miraculous, Khan remarked. I, for one, never expected to see the caravan again. Or Samid, he added, smiling with satisfaction at the memory of that encounter. Chada accepted a second helping of bacon and eggs. It's most short, my story, he said. I woke up when Samid was talking softly to the bears. He said to them, You come with me, quiet like mouses, or maybe I break the neck of you, you bet. I almost woke you up, but I think if I am waking, maybe there is a fight and the sahibs get hurt. So I go with Samid to Nepal, and I tell the police, and we are coming back for you. We figured that's what you had planned, Rick said. Is so? Chada agreed. But when a day is going by, Samid says to us, You wait here. I go get many rupees for us. Soon we will be rich. So we wait. And I come back two or three days. Weiss nodded. He wanted to get back to the lost city and contact Van Groot. I imagine he was afraid of not getting his money, 
Do you suppose any of the other bears know about the city? They do not know, Charter shook his head. Sami did not tell us. But when he went, I was talking to the bears and I say, how do we know Samid is coming back? This Samid, he is a much bad one. He will not give us rupees. You want rupees, you come with me. The sahibs will give much rupees, more than Samid. The Hindu boy paused to take a sip of tea. They talk much, those men, and they say to me, how do we know the sahibs give much rupees? And I answer, how do you know Samid will come back? Also, if you do not go to the sahibs, soon the police will be coming to put you in jail. They listened and they think I speak good. So we came back. But we weren't there, Rick said. It is true. We hunt very long and we climb hills and look more. Then one man is seeing green jacket way high on mountain. I look and I think maybe belongs to Sahib Rick. So we hunt near there and we find Yak. He is near a hole in the mountain. I go in and what I see. Samid must have already been in the city by then, Weiss guessed. I think Samid, he is maybe a Mongol, Chada said. Yeah, he certainly looks like one, Rick agreed. But I don't think he's one of the Mongols from the city. There are many Mongols in this area, Zircon said. They've been pretty well absorbed by the native population. But now and then one comes across the mountains from China. Likely Samid got to Nepal that way. I imagine Van Groot met him when he first left the lost city and hired him on the spot. They were certainly two of a kind. It would have done your heart good to see Professor Zircon smack that big hulk square on the chin. I'll bet it jarred him loose from his mustache, Rick told Scotty. I'd like to have seen you swat Van Groot, too, Scotty grinned. Well, we needn't worry about either of them any longer, Rick gestured toward the sealed entrance. They're in there now, and they're there to stay. You still haven't told us how you managed that last landslide, Zircon prompted. Well, I figured we might need some kind of rear guard, Scotty explained. So, when I met Chada, I told him to beat it back to the entrance and get some of the bears and climb up the mountainside. When we first got into the city, I noticed there was a sheer cliff on the inner side, but the outside of the tunnel could be climbed. Chada picked up the tail. I get three men, and we climb far up, and there is a little place where we can squeeze in, so we do. And when we come out the other side, there is the city. And we look down, and we can see the steps, which are going in the city from the passage. I look good, and I find a big stone, which is loose. We wait long time, and soon you come, then Sahib Skati. And there are many Mongols behind, so I think, it is now Chada. We push the big stone, and bang, much more stone is falling. It's a good thing rock slides come so easily in this country, Rick said. That's the strange part of it, Zircon observed. Actually, it shouldn't. But I have a theory that this part of Tibet, or at least the immediate area, was underwater at one time. The result is this type of rock, a kind of loose shale. Scotty scratched his head. But you wouldn't think just a firecracker explosion would blast it loose. That is understandable, Weiss put in. By the time the explosion was amplified, it was far beyond a mere firecracker noise. Then, with the sound hemmed in by the valley walls, there was a great deal of reverberation. 
which means that the vibration on the loose stones must have been very great. You've seen pictures of glaciers breaking off when a boat blows a whistle. The effect is the same, and very fortunate for us, too. And really unfortunate for Van Groot, Rick added. He's in there now, and I don't know how he's going to get out. A lot of good the pitch plan is going to do him now, Scotty agreed. The Tibetan government must know about that, Zircon said, and about this Mongol city. We're going to have to notify them. They would be very happy, Chada said. Our most poor country is Tibet. I read this at the World Almanac. Zircon smiled at the boy. And how are we going to repay you, Chada? Oh, it's most easy, Chada smiled. When you take me to America, that is good repayment, I think. The four travelers looked at each other, grinning. Well, he certainly earned his passage, said Rick, and the others nodded. I don't know how we're going to arrange it, Zircon bellowed, but you're as good as in America right now, young man. Silence fell over the group as they completed their meal. Rick wondered, Now what? Only three days remaining until the 10th. Their equipment was intact, barring the loss of the batteries Van Groot had taken, but they could never reach the Tengi Bu on time, even with the bears and yaks. Seems a shame to go through so much trouble and not be ready to transmit on time. I've been giving that some thought, Zircon said. Julius, do you have any ideas? There are a great many factors to consider, Hobart, the little professor replied thoughtfully. First, we are actually close enough to Tengi Bu, so that the angular transmission will not be seriously affected. He waved an arm at the encircling mountains. But how could we hope to get a signal out of this pocket? We did on the platform, didn't we? Scotty pointed out. The professor smiled. No, they said in unison, and then grinned at each other. Zircon explained. Our message never got out, Scotty. The power was too weak to even activate the modulator. Julius knew it. I was sure, but I felt that doing something, even something futile, would help morale. Quite so, Weiss agreed. Hobart, if we could find a suitable location near at hand, perhaps on top of one of these nearby peaks, we could possibly set up in time. Provided ground conditions were right. There's no point in worrying about it now. I propose we get a good night's sleep and then start hunting. Fortune has smiled on us, gentlemen. I don't believe she'll let us down now. It was Rick who finally located a suitable transmission point. He went back over his memories of the climb down the mountainside before he had found the lost city and recalled seeing a nearby peak that looked very much like the hill of a thousand repentant ancestors. Then the problem was to locate the peak. He and Scotty climbed back up the mountainside toward the place where his jacket still rested and would certainly remain until the elements rotted it away and spotted the peak a few miles south of their present position. By nightfall, the professors and the three boys had scouted the location, found a gradual slope that led to the top, and had pitched camp. The bearers followed with equipment and supplies. Only two days remained until the 10th, and they were busy days. The equipment had to be set up and tested. Water and fuel had to be carried for the steam-powered generator. While Scotty and some of the bearers hunted for fuel, Rick and others of the group searched for water. Finally, they found a spring that flowed from a crevice between two peaks. 
and then the water had to be hauled up laboriously in a bucket on a rope. But at last the equipment was ready, except for supply voltage for the tube filaments. This was Weiss's problem. He ransacked the spare parts kit and finally rigged up a workable rectifier that would transform power from the big generator to the proper direct current voltage. Not until the pre-dawn hours of July 10th was everything ready and the radar transmitter tested. Rick was helping Professor Zircon make final adjustments on the big oblong antenna when Scotty came up. Well, the generator's turning over, he reported. It's half past five. A queer little chill ran down Rick's spine. Six o'clock was the time set for the trial. From their high peak, he looked out across the Tibetan mountains. To the east was a faint glow, heralding the coming of daylight, but the valleys below were still inky with darkness. In the west, the moon was slowly dipping toward the horizon. He knew that on the other side of the world, the Spindrift Island, it was nearing 8 o'clock in the evening of the previous day, July 9th, and the moon would be rising out of the sea, and his father and mother and Barbie and the professors, yes, even his dog Dismal, would be watching it and thinking of the little group in faraway Tibet. Rick swallowed the sudden lump in his throat and hurried over to Julius Weiss, who was checking the instruments, while Chada looked on. A constant 440 volts, Weiss said. Good, Hobart. Will you take a look at the plate readings? In a circle around the equipment, the bearers were gathered, eyes wide watching the final preparations. As the minutes ticked away, Rick shivered a little from the excitement, as well as from the early morning chill. To the east, streaks of light were sharply silhouetting the mountains. Six o'clock, Zircon called in a ringing voice. Weiss opened his transmitter key, and there was the rapid click of the contact points as he tapped. Tibet, relay, calling, spindrift. Before the message was fully out, the radar scope broke into points of green light, and harsh code from the speaker mingled with the sounds of Weiss's key. Rick's eyes were glued to the scope. That was their own message that activated the scope, and the speaker like a badly timed echo. It had already gone to the moon and returned, traveling the 326,000-mile trip through space in slightly less than two seconds. At this very moment, Hartson Brandt and the others would be receiving the message, bounce, at Spindrift, just as they were receiving it here. The signals died. The scope was quiet again, and the speaker gave forth only a faint humming. Seconds ticked by. Would Spindrift answer? Had that echo to Weiss's message really returned from the moon, or from a high mountain close by? Zircon let out a bellow of delight. The scope was flickering, and from the speaker, the Morse code came over, loud, clear explosions of sound. Spindrift calling Tibet relay via Luna. We read you loud and clear. Then they were all shouting at once and shaking hands, and the bearers watched, awed by this miracle they did not understand. It's our turn now. Zircon began. Wait, said Weiss. There's more. Again, the crackling code. Greetings to you all. Is all well? Rick's eyes went to the mountain wall that hid the lost city. Yes, all was well now. The messages would go back and forth, checking technical data, antenna settings, and so on. But the important thing was that the lunar relay had worked. Anything we want to tell the folks back home? Sir Khan asked. 
Yes, Rick explained. Yes. The others grinned their approval, and Chada beamed as Rick said, Tell Barbie thanks for the fireworks. The end. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of The Lost City by Hal Goodwin. The Rick Brandt theme should have been recognizable by most children of the 60s and 70s as the Johnny Quest theme composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you like using the secure PayPal link. Next up in our queue of new bookcasts will be The Skywalker, which has nothing to do with George Lucas or Star Wars. The Skywalker is book number three of the Richard Benson Avengers series by Paul Ernst. The Skywalker seems to be a man walking in the air over Chicago, pushing a barrel-sized object. His appearance is associated with shattering glass, vanishing railroad tracks, and the collapse of an office building. People panic, fearing the unknown. Inventors Max and Robert Gant are murdered by criminals, and African-Americans Josh and Rosabel Newton, the Gant's servants, are enlisted by Benson to help in the investigation. College-educated Josh and Rosabel become Benson's newest aides. This was a brave writing move on Ernst's part, given that we are talking about a setting in 1940s America here. Yes, the Avenger was a true progressive. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.